Sometimes on this journey I get lost in my mistakes It looks to me like weakness Is a canvas for your strength My story isn't over My story's just begun Failure won't define me Cause that's what my father does Failure won't define me that's what my father does. Ooh, lay your burdens down. Ooh, here in the father's house, check your shame at the door, cause it ain't welcome anymore. not the end game the journey's where you are you never wanted perfect you just wanted my heart and the story isn't over if the story isn't good failure's never final when the father's in the room failure's never final when the father's in the room
It's good to see everybody back here this morning. And uh, just a quote I thought was very appropriate following that song. It says, if God is your father, the son is your savior, and the spirit is your indwelling helper, you have hope no matter what you're facing. So this morning, that thought should lead us to worship, knowing that the Lord is with us, that he is our only hope. And I hope that today that that quote is true of you. If you don't know him as your father, if you don't know Jesus as your savior, and the spirit does not indwell you, today you can know him and walk with him and have a personal relationship. And that is our prayer every week, that you would know him and walk with him. As we begin our service, I have a few important announcements I need to make. And it's, it's nice to have announcements, some new things to share with the church family. But as of this morning, our deacons have met and uh, they have prayerfully considered a lot of things throughout this past year. And just to update you on what our plan is, we're going to kind of ease back in to church as we are used to it. And uh, beginning next Sunday, we're actually going to be offering extended session once again. For all of your parents that are here, you said, amen. But that is, if you don't know what extended session is, if maybe you're new here, extended session is basically, basically our nursery ministry for our preschool department. That is babies through pre-K. And that will be offered during the service beginning next Sunday. And I want to go ahead and thank all those that volunteer in that ministry. Thank you for being willing to serve. But that will begin next Sunday. And we thank Lisa Powell for her leadership in that. And then beginning on May 2nd, we will begin Sunday school back um, again. I heard a clap, I think, there. Yes. Um, but we, we are looking forward to getting back into Sunday school, and that will begin May 2nd. And then officially, our summer activities are moving forward. We will be having children's camp, we will be having youth camp, and we will be having VBS this summer, as we have always done it. Um, our youth camp is June 13th through the 18th. Children's camp is July 27th through the 30th. And VBS is July 18th through the 22nd. So all of you that are willing to serve, just kind of keep that on your radar, and for all your parents, you can begin signing up. Even this week, paperwork will be available next Sunday. You can see Justin if you have questions about our camp activities this summer. But we are excited, and we are trusting the Lord as we move forward. So I'm going to ask everyone if you would please stand, and with a smile on your face, just wave at your neighbor, welcome them to the service, and prepare your hearts for worship.
He's our helper. David said this in Psalms 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear. Aren't you glad that God's our help in the very presence of trouble? That we can go to him. He's our refuge and strength. I have some, some prayer requests this morning from some of our members in the hospital. I want to pray for Johnny Starnes. Johnny's at Catawba. I want you to remember him. I talked to him this morning. Lisa Hudler's here. We want to pray for Lisa. We had prayer for her this week. You know, I believe in prayer. I believe God answers prayer. And we want to pray one for another. Uh, Anita Dunn, I want to pray for her. She said I can mention her name. And Jeff Reed, a young man I went to school with, young man I went to school with. I want to remember him in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and pray one for another. Father, we thank you that you're our very present help in time of need. God, that means you're here. That means we're not alone. That means Emmanuel, God is with us, and we thank you for that, that you're a very present help in all of our needs. And Father, we pray for these requests. Lord, we pray for Lisa. I pray for Johnny. Father, I pray for Anita. I pray for Jeff. And Father, we pray for all the requests that we bring before you, that you would answer them according to your will and your purpose. Lord, I pray for Trent in South Asia and for his team. Lord, thank you for his traveling mercies and grace that you've given him. And Father, we pray for all the needs this morning, but most of all, we pray that we'd worship you in spirit and in truth this morning. Father, we uplift you, we worship you, we adore you, and we love you. We thank you for loving us in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated.
Kayla, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and stand with me. We're going to start a new series talking about King David. And the title of this message this morning is The Chosen One. And I'm going to explain to you this morning, after we go through these verses very quickly, uh, five reasons why David is the greatest. He's the greatest king. He's the greatest warrior, the greatest poet, the greatest musician. He's also the greatest sinner that we're going to see as we study his life. Uh, But notice what the Bible says in verse 1. Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul? And if you remember, Saul was the first king of Israel. God didn't want Israel to have a king, but Israel asked for a king, and God granted them their wishes. And uh, Saul disobeyed the Lord. In verse 26 of chapter 15, the Bible says this. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. The Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. Now look at verse 1 again. Samuel's the prophet in Israel. The Bible says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you... You should do, and you shall anoint for me the one I named to you. Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem, and the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him stand before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, are, the, are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and, and, there, and there he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here, 
So he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy with bright eyes and good looking, and the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Let's pray together. Fathers, we come to you in prayer. Of all David's great experiences, psalms, songs, Lord, all the things that David did, one of the things that stand out to me the most is his incredible trust, even from a young man, in you. Father, in every situation, he trusts you. Lord, when you, when you anoint him here, he trusts you. Father, when he sins, ultimately he comes back and places his faith and trust in you to forgive him. Father, if there's one lesson that we should learn this morning, is to trust you like he did. Lord, it doesn't take great might. It doesn't take incredible spiritual gifts or the ability to sing or speak to trust you. Lord, this week we'll be faced with things in our lives and we'll have a choice. Will we place our trust in ourselves or will we trust in you? Are you Elohim? Are you all-powerful? Are you sovereign? Are you good? Are you my father? Can I trust you? Father, David does this. Throughout the ups and downs of his life, he is probably the greatest in the Old Testament because of his incredible faith in you. Father, I pray that we'd have the same great faith and trust. In Jesus' name I pray, and all of God's people said together, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. First thing, I like what one scholar said. He said, there are more chapters, 141 of them, devoted to the life of David than any other human being recorded in the Bible. The only person who gets more exposure in the Bible than David is God. That's why you can enter into his life. God takes you with David when he lacked faith at times, came back and showed incredible faith. When David was on the highest of highs, and then David, because of his own sin, is on the lowest of lows. Christianity is the only religion, really the Israel history is the only history, where they painted their people warts and all. If you read some of the old history from other uh, countries, you don't see their, their great people shown in a negative light. But one scholar said this, God will not cover up the worst of David, and he will not exaggerate the best of David. In David's setting, it doesn't start out when he was a child. He was probably 14, 15 years old, and it's during a very bad time. It's, his biography opens in the worst of settings. King Saul has just been judged unfit, as we looked at in verse 26, because he would not obey the Lord. And the only reason that Israel chose Saul is because he was tall and good-looking. Okay? Women, watch out for tall, good-looking guys. Okay? It's, no, I'm just kidding. Don't do that. God had nothing good to say about the first king. Samuel grieved all that he lost. Notice verse 1. He says, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing that I've rejected him? And this is Samuel the prophet, and think about this for a minute. He is grieving to the point that he don't think he's going to make it. This, this Hebrew word is a present participle, which means it's a continual grieving. And the reason he's grieving is, is it's not something mundane or secular, it's spiritual. He's grieving over his friend Saul because he had great promise that he would lead his nation. And he's also grieving over the fact that his nation, the kingship, was tied to the spiritual success of the country. Every bad king in Israel led the country in a bad way. So you have Samuel here who is grieving over it. I like what one man said this. He said, the king may have rebelled, but the king of kings has not lost his grip. Notice what God says. He says in verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? 
Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehem, Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And what God is telling uh, Samuel is this. No nation or leader's rebellion creates havoc in heaven. God is sovereign. And what God is trying to tell Samuel is this. It looks like Israel's worst days are ahead of them, but literally Israel's best days are ahead of them. He is about to anoint the greatest king Israel ever would know. And it's under his uh, family tree that the Messiah descends. But Samuel had a problem like we do. And I like how one pastor put it. He said he's grieving over the past and he's worried about the future, but he does not put God in the equation. To Samuel, all is lost. Notice verse 2. And Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He'll kill me. He says, Saul will kill me if I go to anoint another king. Now notice what God says. But the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Notice he didn't say, I've come to anoint the next king. Because that would have been foolish. What would King Saul have done? He would have killed the whole family. God says, you take the sacrifice, you do that anyway. You don't got to tell them why you're there. You don't have to say one reason why you're there. As a matter of fact, it's going to protect the people and it's going to protect you if you just go and, and bring this heifer. So Samuel did what the Lord said, verse 4, and went to Bethlehem. And, and I want to remind you that in a few books back, Ruth and Boaz were from Bethlehem, David's great-great-grandparents. And many years in the future, you're going to have angels singing glory to God in the house because Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Notice what the elders do because they see the prophet coming to town in verse 4, they say, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves. Come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. Now notice what happens in verse 6. So it was, when they came, he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. He's making the same mistake that Israel made. Whenever God tells him, he says, you don't tell Jesse why you're anointing one of his children. They probably thought you was just going to be an assistant to Samuel. He says, when he sees Eliab, he says, this is him. He looks great. And God says, no, put your flask up. God, don't look at the outward appearance. Samuel, you're doing the same thing you did with Saul. You want Saul part two? Do you want, you want Saul the second? He says, put your flask up. And then what happens is all these boys come before him. Okay, One after the other. One after the other. One after the other. Notice verse 10. The Bible says this. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Jesse doesn't understand why. This is just a traditional greeting. God's just putting them right in front of him. They're all coming up, introducing themselves, and the Holy Spirit's telling Samuel, not him, not him, not him, not him. Why would Samuel not tell Jesse why he was there? There again, Saul would have killed him. And I thought about this. Think about this in your own life. Sometimes God doesn't tell you his big plans for your life because you can't handle them now but you will in the future there are some things that God may be doing in your life right now that he may not tell you the end of the story because you couldn't handle it right now Okay, you, you wouldn't be able to handle that right now I'm, I'm so thankful that in my life God through the Holy Spirit didn't tell me when I was younger you're going to be pastor of East Hills Baptist Church I'm just so thankful he didn't I wouldn't have been able to handle it I mean I wouldn't even teach Sunday school for years Okay. Now, imagine God may be doing something in your life right now. Just trust him now with what he's doing. You don't have to have the big picture now. Jesse does not know that his son is going to be the greatest king to ever walk. Notice verse 11. The Bible says this. As a matter of fact, Jesse didn't have a lot of faith in David. And Samuel said to Jesse, are all, these, are all your young men here? He said, there remains yet the youngest, and he's keeping the sheep. 
Now, if Jesse thought one of my boys is going to be the assistant to the great prophet, he thought to himself, it's not going to be David. <laughs> I ain't even going to ask him to come in. As a matter of fact, he's out there getting cheap. And notice, Jesse doesn't send for him. Jesse doesn't offer to send for him. Notice what verse, verse 12 says. And Samuel said to Jesse, send him, bring him. I want to see him. And then whenever David comes in, this young boy, probably 14, 15 years old, smelling like sheep, God gives his, his appearance. He's a little red-headed boy with bright eyes, and he's a halfway good-looking guy, which has nothing to do with why God chose him. And then God says, you take this, you take this flask, and you anoint this young boy, and I bet Samuel's thinking, what are we doing here? What are we doing with this kid? He's been out there tending sheep. His dad doesn't even have trust in him. But what, Dave, what Samuel didn't know and what Israel didn't know, what his, David's own dad didn't know, and what David didn't know are these five facts about the next king. The first thing is this. David is without a doubt the greatest king in Israel's history. He is without a doubt the greatest king in Israel's history. He founded the Judean dynasty. He united all the tribes of Israel under a single monarch, which stayed that way until Solomon died, and then they split into the two kingdoms. He is known even now as the king of Israel. R.C. Sproul said this, His kingdom was so exemplary that the kingdom of God is associated with it. Think about that. The kingdom of God is associated with his kingdom. Christ's kingship in the New Testament is seen as a completion of David's. Christ is viewed, humanly speaking, as David's greater son, the prophet Amos in the Old Testament. Once the kingdom had collapsed and was divided, he said there's going to rise up one from David's line who will set up his kingdom forever. When David ascended the throne, notice this on the map, he extended the borders in Israel from Dan to Beersheba. The importance of that is the borders of Israel at that point are the largest they've ever been. A lot larger than they are now. That was under the leadership of David. Israel today is not as large as it was in David's day. It was a tiny nation when David took over and he turned it under his leadership, this little tiny piece of real estate, into becoming a leading world power. Humanly speaking, that's based on one man's achievement alone, and that's David and his incredible ability to lead. But part of being Jewish is to expect that the son of David will come and take the throne once and for all, forever, literally. Psalm 132.11 says this, The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. And we do know that Solomon sat on the throne, but we also know that Jesus, who came through his line, will sit on the throne forever. Notice what Luke 1 says. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, talking about Jesus, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God associates the kingdom of God with David. David is without a doubt, whenever we read all these things about David in the Old Testament, understand that he is without a doubt and without equal the greatest king Israel has ever had. The second thing that we should know about David is this. He's the Israel's greatest warrior of all time. And when you think about military leaders in the Old Testament, the one that comes to my mind without a doubt is Joshua. When you read about Joshua's conquest of the promised land, you know, God gave them the promised land. It was Joshua through the Lord who said, march around Jericho and the walls will just fall. Do you realize that Joshua defeated 31 kings in 10 battles? As a matter of fact, Josephus, the historian, says this. He makes this statement. He says that Jaban, the king of Hazor, the ruler of a, a city located north of the Sea of Galilee, he, he says this, the total number of Jaban's forces, the largest ever amassed against God's people, 
are considered as numerous as sand on the seashore. The first century Jewish historian Josephus speculated that, that this northern confederacy numbered at least 300,000 soldiers, 20,000 chariots, and 10,000 horsemen. And the Bible says that Joshua beat him, but David was greater than Joshua. David was Israel's greatest warrior in 1 Samuel 18, 5, which we'll look at in a couple weeks. The Bible says this, Whatever mission Saul sent him on, David was successful, so that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the troops and Saul's officers as well. Two verses later it says this, But then the people started to see David as greater than Saul. After the Israelites defeated the Philistines, women danced and sang. And this is what they said, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Notice what the Bible says about David in Psalm 144. David says this, Blessed be the Lord my rock who trains my hand for war and my fingers for battle. He was Israel's greatest king. He was Israel's greatest warrior. David was fearless when he faced Goliath. Do you realize that two armies stood on the side of a mountain for 40 days? And then David shows up and slays the giant. Why? Because David says... Because what history will tell us is that David was without a doubt Israel's greatest warrior. But also this, think about this for a minute. He was Israel's greatest poet. R.C. Sproul made this point. He said if, if David had never been king, if David had never fought a battle, he would still be one of the most famous people in Israel's history just because of his writing. He was Israel's poet laureate. Read the Psalms. Are they not amazing? Isn't that amazing? The beauty of the Psalms and how this king and this warrior... Just think about Psalm 23. You're going to see part of it on the screen. It's read at almost every funeral, is David's writings. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. You know how many people that's brought comfort to? This is a poem written by David. Think about that. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Just an amazing writer. Psalm 80 says this. It's not going to be on the screen. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies. That you may silence the enemy and the avenger. When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? And the son of man that you visit him? You, for you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands, and you have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. You realize that David penned Psalm 16 where he faces death. What, what do you think you would mention if, you, if death, if your life flashed between your eyes? Now, scholars tell us David thought he was going to die, but he didn't. And you go back, I'm not going to read it for you. Go back and read Psalm 16. David doesn't talk about his kingdom, doesn't talk about his house, doesn't talk about his swords. He talks about his, his relationship with the Lord, how God has blessed his life, and his Christian friends and family members. It's amazing. Psalm 19, he talks about creation. David talks about this, such scientifically accurate thoughts on the creation. And then in the same psalm, he talks about the God's word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. All poems that he wrote. See, if David never had been king, 
If David never had been a great warrior, he would still be remembered today because of his writings. One scholar put it this way, David's psalms, his poems and songs, are considered inspired by God and holy. We read them today as God's word today. No one had ever been as great a poet laureate than David. And not only that, but David was Israel's greatest musician. He was the most famous musician in all the Old Testament. We first see David's public ministry when Saul is tormented, okay, mentally tormented. And back then they didn't have no way to help people, and David just came in and played music for him. And the Bible said it would calm Saul's soul. David understood the power of music to bring your spirits up or to bring your spirits down. There was never a musician like David in all of the Bible. And we're, we're, we're the better for him. Think about what Psalm 7 says. David says, I will praise the Lord according to his righteousness. I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. This warrior, this king is a singer. Psalm 9-2 says, I will be glad and rejoice in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. Psalm 33-2 says this, Praise the Lord with the harp. Make melody to him with an instrument of ten strings. Psalm 144, David says this, I will sing a new song to you, O God. On a harp of ten strings, I will sing praises to you. Consider the size of the choir David organized for singing and playing. This is his um, amazing administration. Now think about having this many employees in your, in, your, in your business. And he gathered together all the leaders of Israel and the priests and the Levites. Now the Levites were numbered from age of 30 years and above, and the number of individual males were 38,000. David's over all them. He's administrating all them. Of these, 24,000 were to look after the work of the house of the Lord. 6,000 were officers and judges. 4,000, if you'll notice on the screen, were gatekeepers. And 4,000 praised the Lord with musical instruments, which I had made, said David, for giving praise. He was Israel's greatest musician. Notice Psalm 33.3. He says, sing to him a new song. And if you're going to play, play skillfully with a shout of joy. Sing it good and sing it loud, David says. If you read 1 Chronicles 6, David constantly had singing in the house of the Lord. Constantly. Notice 1 Chronicles 13.8. Consider the intensity and variety when they moved the ark the first time. And David and all Israel played before the Lord with all their might and singing. Now this was their warrior king. This was a guy that they seen win so many battles. And David said, he, David also said this, We're going to play with all our might and we're going to sing as loud as we can. And with harps and psalteries and with timbrels and cymbals and with trumpets, they played before the Lord because God had given them a great victory. David was without a doubt the greatest musician in Israel's history. That's the last thing we see over and over again in David's life is that David loved the Lord. He sang praises to the Lord, wrote songs to the Lord, made instruments that played to the Lord and encouraged and administrated choirs that were so loud and boisterous. They went on, went on and on and on. But also, we also know this, and we got to bring this up as well. He was Israel's greatest sinner. He was the greatest example of just being a human being that I see of in the Bible. He's just a dude who loved Jesus. When I see David's life, I, I, oftentimes when I counsel, especially men, I'm talking about people that love Jesus, not people that are faking it, who have messed up in their lives, and we all do if you live long enough. I'll go back to David. I say, remember this in David's life? Now let's read this psalm together. Now, God loves you as much as he does David. If God can bring David through this, he can bring you through what you're going through. Amen? I'm so thankful that we have all these flaws of David because we all have flaws, don't we? See, when you read a psalm of David where he's repenting, oh, it's real. 
He may not have known it, but all the world is reading about David's life. And God allows it to happen. You know, Paul called himself the chief of sinners in the New Testament. Well, the greatest sinner in the Old Testament was David. And we can learn so much from him. When you think about his relationship with Bathsheba and the fact that he killed one of his best men to have her, that's where Psalm 51 comes through. Notice what David pins in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. You know what David's saying? This is what he's saying. I'm guilty. Okay? He's saying, I am guilty. Let me share this with you. The only, way to, the only way to truly have true repentance in your life is to do this. I'm guilty. It's okay. You don't got to tell me. I don't got to tell you. But I got to tell God, right? Do you trust him enough with your sin? Have mercy on me. What he's saying is this. I'm guilty. Do not apply the consequences from you, God, to my life. I know there are consequences to any sin we do, humanly speaking. But I don't want it to come in from the throne room. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Now notice what he says. Blot out my transgressions. Lord, I've crossed the line. That's what that means. What David is saying here is this. I know your line in my life, and I willfully crossed it. It's not a mistake. I knew what I was doing. I'm a grown man. I knew the consequences of what I was doing. I did it anyway. That's how you get forgiveness. It's not making excuses. I was having a bad day. David said, nope, I did it. I did it, Lord. I did it. I'm guilty. It's not a mistake. I did it. It's not like I, I don't blame my dad or my mom or my home life. I'm a grown man. Blot out this where you, you had a line in my life. You, had, you said it was sin, and then I crossed it. As a matter of fact, I crossed way over, and I didn't care. What that word means in David's life is I know I may get caught, but I don't care. Can you be that honest with God? See, he was, God, he was the greatest sinner, but he was the greatest repenter too. Notice, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. That means immoral perversion is what iniquity means. Can you be that honest with God? God, what I did was immoral. It was wrong. I don't deserve your forgiveness, but will you please blot that out? And then he says this, cleanse me from my sin. That means he just missed the mark, which means this. God, your mark for my life is to be a godly king, and I'm not. Man, can you be that honest? Can you be that real with the Lord? Do you trust God? Do you trust Him? See, I found out that David trusted God with his kingship. You know, you know how long it took David from 1 Samuel 16 to be king? 2 Samuel chapter 1. 15 years. 15 years. You're going to wait that long? Are you that patient on God's promises? David was going to be king. It's not like he was going to be uh, this, that, or the other. He was going to be the the most powerful man literally at that time in the world, King David. And God said, 15 years. And he waited and went through all that he went through. 1 Samuel 1, chapter 16 through the end of the chapter is just David running from Saul. And David trusted the Lord with his promise. He trusted God with his situations when he faced Goliath. When he, when he, when, when he had Saul in a cave and could have killed him, he said, I, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. And he just trusted the Lord. And then when he sinned, which is the hardest one of all, he had so much faith in God that eventually, now in Bathsheba's case, it probably took him a year to fess up, but he did. He did. Do you trust him? Let me ask you a question. That's the, that's the theme of 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2. Do you trust the Lord? Do you really trust him? Notice what David said in Psalm 25. It's one of my opening psalms ever. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And what David is saying with the soul is this immaterial part that nobody sees but you, the real me, 
the real David in my soul. I trust you. Elohim, my God. That means you're all-powerful. You're all-powerful, Lord. And listen, I trust you. Isn't it amazing what we trust in? The word trust means this. I love the word that the dictionary gives us. It's reliance on the integrity. It's the reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, surety of a person or thing. It's incredible confidence in something that you know that you can believe in. Okay? Do you trust in the Lord? And isn't it amazing how trust is vital for any relationship to work? In a marriage relationship, if that trust is broken, it, takes, it don't mean it can't come back. It don't mean it can't. God can do anything. It's really tough. That's why Proverbs 31, whenever they're describing this godly woman, it says, Who can find a virtuous wife? Her price is far above rubies. The heart, the very real part of her husband, safely trusts her. Because there was so much immorality back in those days. You want to be a godly wife? Be a faithful wife. Amen? You want to be a godly husband? Be a faithful husband. Trust, when that's broken in a relationship, your pastor can't bring that back, nor can Cornerstone or any other counseling group. Trust. But it can be brought back. It's, I have confidence in this person. I believe in their integrity. David's saying this with his relationship with the Lord. Lord, I trust you with my soul. Isn't it amazing what we trust, though? It's amazing what we place our trust in. I remember putting this to the point, and I've shared this with you before, but it's been many years ago. Back in, I think it was 2000 or 2001, I tore a meniscus in my left, left knee. Okay, I've never had an injury. Tore a meniscus playing basketball one night on a Wednesday night. I was a youth pastor then. Knee swelled up. Couldn't hardly walk. And everybody said, you probably tore a meniscus or your ACL or something. I said, no, nah, I'm good. So they said, why don't you go see this surgeon? So I went to see this surgeon. He said, I think you tore your meniscus. I said, you hadn't even looked at me. You know? And he says, well, lay down on the, on the bed. I lay down on the bed. He grabbed my leg and turned it up, and I screamed out loud. I about hit him, okay? He's alive today because I didn't hit him. I'm just kidding. But then he said, you, you probably tore your meniscus. I said, no, I didn't because I'm a man. I had a scheduled an MRI for a meniscus tear, and they said, you tore your meniscus? I said, I thought so. <laughs> but anyway, I go see this surgeon, right? You know, I went to see this surgeon because somebody told me he's a good surgeon. I go in there, and I, I go into his office, and I see this certificate. Said, says he's a good surgeon. Okay, The day of my surgery, now I never had surgery before. I've been with people that had surgery before. I go in there and the nurse hands me this, this gown that don't have a back. And she says, take all your clothes off. I said, I barely know you. you know. So here I am laying in this bed with this gown on that I'm afraid to stand up because I can't even tighten the back. And she comes in here with a marker and says this, will you mark which knee he's going to operate on? I said, are you kidding me? No, no, we want to make sure we get the right knee. I thought she was kidding. I drew a big old Tar Heel foot and said, please do a good job today, right? Push me back in the back where everybody waits, like your, your cattle are back there to have surgery. My surgeon walks in. This is, I'm not lying to you. He says, I can't even remember who I'm doing surgery on today. I said, you better, you better know who you're doing surgery on today. Now get this, get this. Here I am marking my own knee. Back here with people I don't know, the lady beside me, she's complaining the whole time. Guy comes in with some, I call it a do-rag on. Says, I'm going to put this stuff in your IV, and you're going to sleep. And I said, I'll go ahead and do it. <laughs> you know, He puts that in there. I don't remember anything. And there are four or five people in there with me with a gown on, with knives cutting on my body. 
All right? They're cutting on my body with knives. When, when I woke up in, in recovery, the lady says, you need to get up. I said, why? She said, she said you got to get up, sir. I said, I love this. This put me back to sleep, you know? So I go home, and I have these three holes in my knee. Now think about this. I placed my trust in a guy I didn't know off somebody else's recommendation. He got me naked in the bed with a knife. And I said, go ahead and do it. And I give him $5,000. What a blessing. All right? Is that not a blessing? Now let me tell you something. We're talking about God. You understand what I'm saying? We're talking about Elohim. We're talking about real things in your life. Can you trust Him? I trust God more than I do a surgeon. I trust God more than I do anybody. Will you give these things that you're clinging to to Him? Do you trust Him enough with that? Some of you are lost here today. You will not trust Him with your soul. I'm going to encourage you today to place your faith and trust in Him. For salvation alone today. Some of you in here, you don't think your situation is going to get better. And it may not today. It may not tomorrow. It may not the next week. But I would tell you this. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. Trust Him. I wonder how many times David had to sleep in a cave. Because he was on the run. I got a message this series called Cave Days. And we all have them. Do you trust Him? The only way out of that cave is just to trust Him. All right? Do you trust Him? I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. And if you're here today and you're born again, whatever it is you're facing, just silently say, Lord, I trust you. I trust you, oh my God. I trust you. I trust you. And if you're here today and you're lost, with your soul and your sins, Say, God, today I place my trust in Jesus alone for my salvation. I trust you. I trust you. Save me. Whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, as we come to you in prayer, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. Lord, I thank you for the life of David and the many lessons this taught me. And Lord, I pray that as your people, as your church, Lord, we trust you. Lord, as we go into this reopening phase, we're just trusting you each step of the way. And if we're wrong, stop us. And if we're right, just keep opening doors. But Lord, one thing we're going to do as a church is we're going to trust you. We're going to trust you with all our heart, our soul, and our mind. Oh my God, I place my trust in you. In Jesus' name I pray and all of God's people said together, amen. God bless you. I hope you have a great week and hope to see you back here Sunday. Thank you. You're dismissed.